Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Ed Smith, Head of Asset Allocation at Rathbones. Earlier this week, the Office for National Statistics reported that in September, UK inflation hit a five-year high of 3%, well above the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee's 2% target. Ed, what has driven UK Consumer Price Index, or CPI for short, inflation to this five-year high? Well, maybe let's go back a couple of years to 2015. Uh, the CPI rate of inflation hovered around zero uh, percent, and that was the case for most countries um, in advanced, for most advanced economies. Now that was due to the plunge in commodity prices, and that was due to some deeply negative uh, producer prices in China. Now that all sort of unwound in 2016. Inflation rose um, to around one one and a half percent all around world, all around the advanced world, economy world. Um, now, in 2017, the UK rate of inflation has continued to go up and up and up, whilst the rate of inflation in other advanced economies has plateaued. So there's something unique going on uh, in the UK. And that's really all about uh, the exchange rate. Okay, so we had that big plunge in the exchange rate after the referendum. It's still down about 12.5%. That takes around about six quarters to sort of have a, its peak effect on uh, inflation, um, uh, and that's where we are now. Okay, um, I suppose the next thing on people's mind is probably, um, will inflation continue to rise? Well, we think it's uh, going to peak in October. In fact, we would have said that it would uh, have peaked in September had it not been for the um, uh, British gas hikes and utility bills that are, that are, that are going to come into the uh, into the index this month. Um so, uh, you know, I run some short-term models trying to gauge these sorts of things. Uh, they look at the trends in import prices, in core inflation, in the price of oil and in inflation expectations. Uh, and they suggest that by the end of March 2018, um, uh, inflation will already be back down to 2.5%, so you know, peaking in October. OK, so um, that will come out in early November, so uh, eyes peeled for that. Now, even if it goes down a bit, it's still well above the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee's target of 2%. Do you think they're going to do something about that and what? Well, I think they've made it pretty clear that they're going to increase interest rates by 0.25% at the next meeting, which is on November the 2nd. Uh, what are they going to do after that? I don't think they're going to do too much more after that. Um, monetary policy is always about a trade-off between price stability and economic growth. So the question we've got to ask is, does inflation need dampening more than growth needs supporting? Uh, now, as um, we just discussed, I think inflation is already on its way back down after October without any help from the, the Bank of England. Um, and the Bank of England um, have some methodologies which we replicate at Rathbones, Rathbones to keep an eye on uh, what we call domestically generated inflation. So the Bank of England can only dampen inflation that is due to domestic forces, not global price factors that are beyond its control. Now, those indicators suggest that domestically generated inflation might have actually already peaked a couple of months ago. So I don't think inflation needs to be fought down too hard. And growth is still quite weak. You know, 
forward-looking indicators for the UK economy are, are pretty lacklustre. Growth this year is probably going to be the weakest in the G7. I suggest next year it may well be two. Uh, so growth needs some support. Inflation is already on its way back down. Probably just going to be that one rate rise uh, for now, maybe one more next year. Okay, what sort of level do you anticipate them going to? Is it going to be substantial? The end point for rate rises? Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, I think next year, you know, we may get up to 0.75% again. If if, uh, the economy surprises on the upside, maybe to 1%, but we think interest rates are going to stay very low for quite a long time. Okay, so uh, not better conditions for savers then, but uh, good news for those of us of debts. Now, thinking about inflation more broadly, because obviously we've been talking about next month, maybe March, but obviously, you know, if you're an investor in particular, you probably invest over decades. So um, let's just start with, you know, what exactly is inflation and what drives it, you know, over the longer term? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, actually. Um, Inflation is a general rise in prices. It's not just about certain groups of goods and services getting more or less expensive here or there. It's about the general rise in prices, the net effect. And often that net effect isn't really properly um, considered um, uh, in in the investment community. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Globalisation is uh, widely thought to have been profoundly deflationary over the last 20 years or so because globalisation has taken an axe to um, production costs for lots of the goods that we consume. And that's absolutely right. But it's also had some profoundly inflationary impulses going in the other direction that affects some other prices. So, um, uh, for example, most of us haven't pocketed the savings from our cheaper TVs and our cheaper T-shirts, we've spent them elsewhere. And we've probably spent them, and some of that has been spent in sectors that don't benefit from globalisation, you know, like um, haircuts or weekends away. Uh, so, you know, that extra demand has increased prices elsewhere. Globalisation has added millions to the global middle class through enriching emerging uh, markets. They compete for many of the same goods and services that people in the West spend their money on. Again, that's inflationary. And we all know what China has done to commodity prices. So um, inflation, yeah, it's about that general aggregate effect in the price level, you know, average across all the sorts of things uh, we consume. Uh, so what drives um, uh, in, in, in that, that um, general trend? Um, well, as I said... Globalization hasn't necessarily been profoundly deflationary, but it has meant that global factors are much more important than domestic factors. So what's going on with demographics globally or uh, what's uh, or in the shorter term, you know, how much uh, slack, how much spare capacity is there in the global um, economy? Um, so global factors are very important. Also, um, and this is... Uh, made sort of monitoring inflation quite boring but one of the most important drivers is simply the credibility of central banks and the fact that inflation is now anchored around uh, central bank inflation targets so over the last 20 years and Mark Carney has pointed this out in a a speech he gave um, uh, uh, last month 
um, that over the last 20 years, inflation is now really just a random walk around the 2% inflation target in most advanced economies. So that credibility of central banks is really important for driving inflation. Okay. And do you think this will continue to be the case? Or, you know, as you know, the world seems to be changing rapidly, um, is what drives inflation? Is it likely to evolve in the years and decades ahead? Um, I mean, I think thinking about the next 10 or 20 years, um, we think that those drivers are likely to remain the same. But some of the signs may change. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, so uh, I think demographics, yeah, ageing populations, has for 50 years been um, deflationary. But I think we've actually just reached a major turning point and ageing populations are about to become inflationary. So, um, and that's perhaps out of consensus. That's perhaps not the popular um, wisdom prevailing at the moment. Uh, why do I think that? Well, a number of reasons, but the main one, which I'll touch on now, is uh, the. Pro- it's not so much uh, that the society as a whole is aging or, or shrinking, perhaps, or yeah, it's about which parts of. Uh, the population are are increasing or decreasing relative to other parts. It's a, so for the last fifty years, although we've been getting older, societies have been getting older. Um, the number of people of working age has been growing relative to the old and young, so people outside of working age. But for pretty much all advanced economies and many of the major emerging market ones, including China. That has, is changing as we speak, or it has done in the last five years. Going for the next 50 years, the people of working age are going to shrink relative mainly to the number of older people. So that means there's going to be fewer people to produce all of the goods and services that everyone consumes. And that's inflationary if, if you've got the sort of demand stays the same, but fewer people to, to service that demand, that's, that's inflationary. Okay. Now, we've obviously been looking at the big picture and talking about the long term, but there's a short term influence that I can't fail to um, mention, and that is Brexit. So what effect might Brexit have on UK inflation? Um, Well, at its worst, Brexit would represent a really negative um, hit to to the productive capacity of the country uh, so you put so in the worst case sort of no deal scenario you put up major barriers between you and your biggest trading partner uh, productivity is going to suffer um, now that's much more likely to have lasting impacts on the exchange rate and perhaps on interest rates but it's probably quite unlikely to have a lasting impact on inflation so long as the Bank of England is um, uh, able to, um, to to offset some of the, those negative forces. So as long as the Bank of England is able to conduct monetary policy, um, um, inflation shouldn't really deviate from around the 2% target as a result of Brexit. But as I said, the impact on exchange rates or interest rates may, may be more lasting. Okay. Now, um these do seem like rather esoteric economic matters, which is 
great if you're an economist or perhaps an academic, but ultimately, if you're you know, a, an ordinary investor in the real world, saving in your SIP or your ISA for your retirement or to buy your first home, do you really need to care about all this? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I may be the wrong person to ask because you know, I do macroeconomics research for a living. Sometimes I wake up thinking about inflation. Sometimes I go to bed thinking about it, although that probably says more about my work-life balance than well. anything else. But, um... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, inflation is important um, uh, for everyone because, as you, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, um, if you're saving for in your SIP or, or in your ISA, you're, you're saving uh, for a reason. If it's in your SIP, it's for, for your pension. And you want to maintain a certain standard of living in your retirement, and that standard of living is going to be linked to what inflation does. Uh, similarly, if you're saving in your ISA, maybe for, if you're, uh, for a deposit for a house, yeah, house prices ha- are in some way linked to inflation. So, you know, how much uh, deposit you need is going to be linked link to inflation. So, it's going to be important to you too. So, I think most investors, even if they're not explicit about um, some sort of inflation-linked return, are uh, going to be affected by it, uh, and their outcomes, uh, their investment outcomes, are going to be affected by it. Okay. I mean, can you elaborate a bit on that? Because obviously you're talking about an inflation-linked return or I suppose what you could also describe, you know, as a, an inflation-adjusted real return target. Mm. Um, you know, why why, why is this um, so important? Well, as I said, it's about, um, it, it's about the objective of most investors. Now, most investors have... Uh, a certain objective and that could whether that's passing on uh, a certain amount of their wealth to their children whether that's you know as i said maintaining a certain standard of living in 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 retirement uh whether that's being able to afford that second home to enjoy when when you're older um uh, and uh, and all of that um is in some way linked to the cost pressures in the economy um, and that's you know, what inflation is, is trying mm. to trying to get 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 a handle on. So, because your objectives are probably in some way linked to those cost pressures in the economy, you probably want to make sure that your return exceeds those cost pressures in 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 the economy to which your objectives are going to be uh, subject to. Okay, so um, how can you do this? I mean, how can you protect your investments against inflation? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. The I think what many investors immediately think of is something like uh, an inflation-linked bond. Yeah, so there are bonds which don't play pay a sort of nominal fixed return as is traditional. The the coupon and sometimes the 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 end payment is linked to inflation, so you're protected. Um, but with real interest rates, you know, interest rates after inflation on these bonds very very low. You're probably not going to make much money on these things unless inflation greatly exceeds the expected inflation that is baked into the price of these um, index-linked bonds today. And in the UK, we've got a bit of a problem because um, UK inflation expectations um, baked into the price of these uh, assets are, are really quite high. They're no lower than than the average of the last 20 or 30 years, uh, and that gives you a bit of a valuation problem. That's actually completely different to the price of these bonds in uh, America and and some other advanced economies as well, where inflation expectations are still very depressed. Uh, 
So there's actually probably a bit of a valuation opportunity there. Um, so you know, that's one uh, perhaps very obvious area. Um, you know, equities uh, are in many ways um, inflation-linked, but you obviously have to be very careful about which companies you pick. Now, in general, equity valuations are absolutely fine as long as inflation is above 0.5% but below 3.5%. So inflation has to get quite high before equity markets uh, really take a, 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 a big hit. Um, but yeah, when inflation does start to get high, you have got you know, perhaps between 2 and 3.5%. You've got to make sure that you're investing in the right companies. And we call that investing in companies with pricing power. That means companies that can take rising input costs, whether that's from wages or raw materials, and pass those rising costs on to the end market. So uh, companies um, you know, that uh, have a really great market position, that sell something, perhaps something unique, or have a great reputation for quality that people are going to be willing to pay a little more for if, if inflation rises, uh, are the ones that you want to, to look for and should protect you in, in an inflationary environment. Okay. Now, we've been talking about investments that, let's say, can um, mitigate perhaps or tolerate inflation. But um, taking another step, are there any types of investments or strategies that actually positively benefit from inflation? Um, well, I mean, certainly, um, certainly equities would suffer if there was deflation. And as we discussed, you know, the, uh, uh, companies with pricing power could benefit, could potentially benefit from um, inflation. Um, there are clearly some um, uh, asset classes that um, uh, explicit where their return is explicitly linked uh, to inflation. So beyond index-linked gilts, we have many sort of infrastructure investment vehicles um, where uh, the return is clearly linked to um, the RPI quite often in the UK in a way that perhaps their input costs aren't. So you may um, have, a, have a net benefit there. But... Yeah, we um, uh, at Rathbones are not overly positive on many of these um, types of uh, infrastructure vehicles um, because um, they many of them are trading at large premiums um, to their net asset values, um, and uh, and really they they become rather overboard. Okay, thank you, Ed. Some really helpful explanations. And also see next week's money section for more tips on how to protect your portfolio against inflation. Last year, UK commercial property funds became a no-go area for many investors after a number of them stopped investors from taking their money out soon after the UK's vote to leave the European Union. But scroll on a year and the picture is very different, with all the funds having reinstated the ability to take money out only a few months after imposing the restrictions. Emma, you've written this week's big theme on this topic. So first of all, why did a number of property funds stop investors from withdrawing money following the Brexit vote? 
Well, after the shock Brexit vote, a huge number of investors in open-ended commercial property funds wanted their money back as they were worried about the outlook for the property sector. But basically, the funds just didn't have enough liquidity to be able to give them the cash back to all the investors that wanted their money back. And as a result, they had to temporarily close their funds to investors to take the time to sell some of their properties to get to raise the cash to pay back the investors. Okay. But, um, yeah, obviously concerns. But what is the situation of the UK commercial property market now? Well, as you mentioned, all of the funds that were closed last year opened within a few months of having to do that and are now trading normally again. And far from being down and out so far this year, UK commercial property has performed much better than expected. So in the eight months to August, um, the Investment Property Data Bank Monthly Index made 6.5%, and that's compared to just 2.6% for the whole of last year. OK, and are there any particular types of UK commercial property that might do well? Yes, the analysts that I spoke to were very keen on industrials, which are expected to be the strongest performing sector. And these include areas um, such as the huge industrial units used by online retailers to store their goods. And we all know that internet shopping is experiencing strong growth. And so those assets are set to do well. Um, another area which was talked about as something that could be do well in the future is regional areas. So commercial property in regional areas expected to perform well, as unlike London, the regions are earlier in the property cycle. OK, now those are areas that will do particularly well, but you did paint a generally overall positive picture. But digging down, are there any areas that might not do so well? Um, Yes, there are. Central London being the most obvious one, particularly central London offices, which are being weighed down by investor worries about Brexit and um, what the impact of the deal or potentially no deal that we get has um, if companies decide to move abroad to mainland Europe. That could have a big negative impact on that sector. Okay, so a mixed picture, but overall positive. So should you consider exposure to UK commercial property? Well, generally, the wealth managers and financial planners I spoke to did feel that actually it's good for investors to own some commercial property um, because it has a number of benefits. One of the main ones is diversification away from the stock market. And also you've got that ability to receive good level of income and with the potential for capital growth. How much exposure should you have? It varies between about 5 to 15%, depending on you know, the investor's risk appetite. OK. Now, despite the improvement in the outlook for the sector, property funds could still stop investors taking their money out again should there be more problems. So are they an appropriate way to access commercial property or how else could you do it? You could go down the investment trust route um, rather than the open-ended route. And unlike open-ended funds, investment trust will never have to gate investors in because of the structure of the way the funds are, are set up. Um, so basically, if an investor wants to get their money back from a trust, they need to sell their shares on the secondary market. And that means that trusts are not need to going to have to um, close the fund to go and liquidate properties to pay back investors. Okay, I mean, that sounds really good. So these are a kind of fail-safe way to uh, access commercial property? I wouldn't quite say that um, because I mean, one of the downsides of investment trusts is that they do um, operate on these um, discounts or premiums to net asset values. And in a market crisis, you'll often find that the 
um, the, the trust can swing to quite a wide discount, which means that the price you're getting for selling your shares will be will not be very good. Okay, and I suppose that raises the issue that perhaps we have a bit more correlation with the equity market at times than they do with the underlying commercial property market. Yes, that's true. Okay, so some pros and cons. But nevertheless, um, what might be a good investment trust to consider if you want to allocate to UK commercial property? Sure. Um, One example is Tritex Big Box. Um, It's quite a new trust, only been set up in the last few years or so, but it invests in the big box warehouses used by online retailers to store their goods. And as we mentioned, that's a growing area of the market. Um, so the trust is yielding 4.35% at the moment, and over three years it has made 51.8%. Um, it's got an ongoing charge of 0.93%. Okay, very nice return. Now, obviously, um, you know, things are looking better for UK commercial property funds. So if you want to go down the fund route rather than the investment trust route, what would be an example of a good commercial property fund? One example is Legal and General UK Property Fund. Um, its highest sector exposure is to industrials, followed by offices in regional areas. And as we mentioned, both those areas are expected to do well. Um, it's yielding less than the Tritax one. It's 2.2%. And it made 23.5% over three years. But it's quite, quite a low ongoing charge of 0.75%. OK, so quite competitive. Now, Ed, um, what's your view on commercial property? Let's say specifically UK commercial property. Do you think it's a good idea to allocate to it at the moment? I mean, it all sounds very rosy. Uh we don't think it is quite as rosy, but but a lot of that is really due to um, the uncertainty that Brexit brings. And for us, you know, uh, I'm sure you know, this is now starting to sound a bit tired, but the one thing certain about Brexit is that we don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> a known and, unknown. Uh, exactly, exactly. A known, yeah. un, a known unknown. Um, and uh, And... You've got to be careful about those known unknowns, in our opinion. If we have higher conviction elsewhere, yeah, we're, we're, we're probably going to favour those areas over something where there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I totally uh, agree uh, with Emma that the, that the least um, uh, favourable reason for us is London offices. You know, vacancy rates in the, in the West End are still about 7%. In the city, they're still um, unusually high as well. And there's a lot of floor space under construction in both the West End and the city um, at the moment. Uh, regionally, on the high street, um, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, that's continuing to suffer as well. One in three of... Um, uh, stores previously occupied by British home stores, so um, mm. you know, big properties, one in three of them are still to be let to new tenants. There's clearly mm. pockets of excess. Industrials ag- agree, they seem to be having a great time. But there's actually quite an interesting bit of information possibly in the um, relative, um, relatively more optimistic outlook for industrials. Over the last 30 years, industrials have only outperformed the rest of UK commercial property three times. And in those three occasions, it was always at the very end of the property cycle. So it might so that might be a sort of leading indicator of something uh, rather less rosy to, to, to come. OK, so we shall see what happens anyway. Thank you, Ed. And you can see Emma's full list of UK commercial property fund and investment trust suggestions in this week's magazine and the website. Neil Woodford 
is considered to be one of the UK's leading fund managers. But recently, it's been disclosed that one professional investor pulled out a huge amount of money from the CF Woodford Equity Income Fund, which Investors Chronicle actually counts among its IC Top 100 funds. Emma, who's this investor and why did he pull the money out? So the money's been pulled out by John Chatfield Roberts. He's the head of Jupiter Asset Management's Merlin Funds range. And um, he runs its Merlin Growth Income and Balance Funds and apparently has been divesting his holdings in the Woodford Fund for at least the last couple of years. He's down. He's completely withdrawn all the money from the fund, down from a holding of £900 million in 2015 to zero today. Well, that's massive. So, you know, why has he done it? Um... Well, maybe unsurprisingly, Jupiter hasn't commented on the reasons why they've withdrawn the money. But um, some of the analysts I spoke to this week said it could be for a number of reasons. For example, I mean, they could just be sort of rebalancing their own portfolio or perhaps it's because they don't agree with Mr Woodford's more positive stance on the UK domestic market. Of course, it could also be down to the fact that he's had a pretty poor performance over the last summer or year or so. And that could have been something that's influenced things too. Okay, so uh, not clear, but... Mm. um, are other professional investors and analysts also withdrawing from Mr Woodford's funds? No, they're not. Pretty much everybody I spoke to said they were sticking with the fund. And and that's really just because of Mr Woodford's long track record of outperformance in the equity income sector. And that's why they just basically feel pretty confident about his abilities going forward. Okay, so reasons to stick with CF Woodward equity income as well then. Thank you, Emma. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on commercial property and the best ways to access it and the arguments for and against CF Woodford Equity Income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.